welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. I'll be focusing pretty much exclusively on North American and European trans history from the Victorian era to today, mostly because that's where my knowledge base is. Hopefully at some point I'll be able to bring on some wonderful experts and raconteurs from other regions to cover their histories. If you happen to be such an expert, give me a ring and let's chat about it. Continuing on from our last two episodes that explored trans people in North America during the 1970s, first with the mystery of Lou Reed's transsexual lover, Rachel, and then entering the heyday of Vancouver's golden age of prostitution among trans sex workers on Davie Street. Today, we'll be taking our first look at perhaps the most quintessential figures of the trans 70s, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. I plan to cover Sylvia and Marsha over several episodes in the coming months because their stories are too big and too important for just one 30-minute introduction. This episode will focus on their early years as friends and the formation of Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. We'll end around 1973. Before we get started, I want to give credit where credit is due. It is largely because of the work of two people that we know most of what we know about Sylvia and Marcia's lives. Or at least what I know about their lives. These people are Raina Gossett and Randy Wicker. Randy Wicker, a friend of Sylvia and Marcia, has spent many years promoting their work and documenting their lives. And Raina Gossett, a Black trans artist, activist, and genius in New York City, has spent years combing through archives and digitizing that material, including the now legendary 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day speech by Sylvia Rivera. Raina writes, I unearthed this material through hustling my way into spaces that are historically inaccessible to Black trans women. Most recently, when I went to the New York Public Library to try and find Starr's statement, I was accosted coming out of the bathroom and scrutinized by security. This isn't something new to me, just part of living for me. But that's also part of the story of how the statement landed on the internet. Raina has put herself into risky, transphobic situations in order to share this history with us. Without her efforts, much of what we now take for granted as the historical record on the lives of Sylvia and Marcia would not be widely available. She's also the co-director of the soon-to-be-released film Happy Birthday, Marcia, starring Maya Taylor of Tangerine fame. This gorgeously shot film follows the events leading up to the Stonewall riots through the friendship of Marcia P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Do not pass up an opportunity to see this film. You can learn more about Raina's work through her website, RainaGossett.com. That's with a double S and double T. 
and through the links in the show notes. Now, sit back and join us as we take a look at the beginnings of Sylvia and Marcia, saints of the trans movement in Star House and Star People. Sylvia Rivera was born on July 2nd, 1952. She was of Puerto Rican and Venezuelan ancestry. She had an extremely turbulent early life. This is how she described one incident from her childhood. Grandma raised me because my mom committed suicide when I was three. Her second husband was a drug dealer, and she didn't want drugs in the house. He threatened to kill her and me, so the only way that she knew to cop out was she poisoned herself, and she also tried to poison me by lacing milk with J.R. rat poison. When her grandmother got sick, Sylvia was sent to St. Agnes' home, a Catholic orphanage. She later moved to Long Island with a female friend of her grandmother and that woman's common-law husband. But things didn't get better. There was so much violence in the home that she had to flee. She said later, I don't have no father, I don't have no mother, and I'm not putting up with none of this shit no more. In a 1998 interview with transgender writer and revolutionary Leslie Feinberg, Sylvia describes life on the streets. I left home at age 10 in 1961. I hustled on 42nd Street. The early 60s was not a good time for drag queens, effeminate boys, or boys that wore makeup like we did. Back then, we were beat up by the police, by everybody. I didn't really come out as a drag queen until the late 60s. This is where Sylvia met Marsha. Marsha was 17 and panhandling at the corner of 42nd Street and 6th Avenue. She was immediately concerned when she saw 10 or 11-year-old Sylvia proudly marching up the street. Marsha said, Oh, Miss Thing, you're so young. You really should be at home with your mother. She would come to take on a maternal role in Sylvia's life. Sylvia insisted that day that instead of panhandling, she would do sex work. And promptly, young Sylvia was arrested. As the police took her away, she looked back and saw Marcia waving goodbye. Sylvia describes the 42nd Street life in the early 60s. I was too young to go to the few clubs that existed, but there were many house parties. They were called rent parties. There was always something going on, and it was fun, you know, because people needed money for their rent. 50 cents, a dollar. You help somebody out, and you might end up crashing there sometime. That was basically the scene for the youth back then, except for the drag balls. But you had to be a little older than I was to start going with that group of people. Sylvia was given her name by people she referred to as the godfather and godmother of 42nd Street, an old butch dyke and an old queen who held christening ceremonies complete with a Spanish Pentecostal preacher for the mostly Latinx and Black 42nd Street community. Sylvia told how they came up with her name. 
There is no Sylvia right around at this realm. If there is, we don't know about it. You'll be a Sylvia. What's the other name that you like? I said, well, I like Lee. So it became Sylvia Lee Rivera. And it's always been that way. Sylvia's ceremony, in which she wore a white dress, had around 40 people attending, including Marcia. Just a side note, sometimes you may see Sylvia's name written out, Sylvia Ray Rivera, instead of the name given here, Sylvia Lee Rivera. Ray was Sylvia's dead name. I'm unclear whether people's usage of this is a posthumous misgendering or if perhaps she had taken up the name again later herself. As ever, I err on the side of caution and will stick with Sylvia Lee Rivera myself. Hustling not only brought in much needed cash, it also provided street queens with a sense of community and feelings of power. Marsha put it like this, during the daytime, they call us fags and freaks. At night, I get even. I freak on them. I make them pay for the insults they give me. I can have a nice conversation with them, give them words of wisdom, but I'm getting back at them my way. Sylvia later said, we stood by each other, had each other's back for many years. And even back in the days of pre-Stonewall, we would sit on 44th Street, a lot of us girls like Marsha and Vanessa, Miss Edwina, Miss Josie, a whole bunch of us would sit around in a room. We'd be getting high or something and we'd start talking politics. We'd start talking politics and about when things were going to change for us as human beings. From what I can tell, during these early days in the 1960s, Sylvia was a serious social networker. Sylvia and Marcia not only made friends on the streets and at house parties, but also in jail. Here's how Sylvia described meeting future star member Bambi in an interview with Martin Duberman. Bambi I met in jail the first time that I had to wait to go to trial. The most beautiful black drag queen that you could ever see. She's passed on to her reward too now. We met on Rikers Island. We were going to breakfast and she looked at me and I looked at her and she says, well, who are you, bitch? And I'm like, since when did they let Dyke stay over with the fags? She's like, well, I'm not a Dyke. She says, my name is Bambi Lamour. My name is Sylvia. Finally, in 1969, all hell broke loose. <laughs> Sylvia would later describe to Feinberg how proud she was of Stonewall. I was a radical, a revolutionist. I am still a revolutionist. I'm glad I was in the Stonewall riot. I remember when someone threw a Molotov cocktail, I thought, my God, the revolution is here. The revolution is finally here. I always believed that we would have a fight back. I just knew that we would fight back. I just didn't know it would be that night. I am proud of myself as being there that night. If I had lost that moment, 
I would have been kind of hurt because that's when I saw the world change for me and my people. Of course, we still got a long way ahead of us. Whether or not Sylvia was actually at the 1969 Stonewall riots is up for debate. Some have pointed out that it wasn't until 15 years after the fact that Sylvia began mentioning that she'd been there. Marcia herself later said that she hadn't seen Sylvia at least not that first night. Like much of what is said about Stonewall, it's difficult to tell what is true factually from what is true emotionally. I would argue that Stonewall is an oral tradition, that its facts change with each telling to suit the audience and the political agenda of the speaker, and that this isn't a bad thing. Either way, what we can say for sure is that Sylvia was and had always been part of the vibrant street culture that spawned the riots that night. And Marsha, meanwhile, was seen by many to be hanging off a street post, dropping a heavy purse through the windshield of a police cruiser. A year later, on September 20th, 1970, Sylvia and Marsha attended a sit-in in the basement of NYU's Weinstein Hall. Gay activists from groups like Gay Liberation Front and Gay Activist Alliance were protesting the university for canceling gay dances that had been scheduled to take place there. This sit-in was a pivotal moment for gay activism and took place over five days. Sylvia was there for the entire occupation. Together, Sylvia and Marcia formed STAR and released a statement in October 1970 about the sit-in. Raina Gossett, dug the statement out of the New York Public Library, as I discussed at the beginning of this episode, titled, Gay Power, When Do We Want It? Or Do We? It reads in part, So now the question is, do we want gay power or pig power? We are willing to admit that we need pigs, but we only need them for crime control. We do not need them to beat and harass our gay brothers and sisters. The pigs are not helping the people who are being robbed on the streets and being murdered. How can they when they're too busy trying to bust a homosexual over the head? Or they're too busy trying to catch someone hustling so they can arrest them. But they do give us an alternative. All we have to do is commit sodomy with them and they'll forget they ever saw us. Until the next time, that is. So again, we ask you, do you want pig power or gay power? This is up to each and every one of you. It was signed, Street Transvestites for Gay Power. Richard Wandell, a member of Gay Activist Alliance, in a 2003 interview with Stephen L. Cohen, described the early members of STAR. Bebe was the rational one. Sylvia was the one totally consumed by anger. And Marsha was sometimes there and sometimes not. Like Sylvia and Marsha, the other members of STARS, such as Andorra and Bambi, had faced extremely tough circumstances before joining the group. One example given by Stephen L. Cohen, is about how star member Bubbles had grown up with frequent periods of starvation. 
Randy Wicker says that when he, quote, talked to her about overeating, Bubbles would argue that if you had ever gone hungry like I have, you would understand that there's no such thing as eating too much. In a July 15th, 1971 Village Voice article by Arthur Bell, posted online by Raina Gossett, Bell outlined how different star people were from other trans and gay people at the time. He writes, They call themselves girlies. They're unlike Hollywood Lawn and Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling and some of the others who are into fashion and movie star image. They're unlike Miss Trentons and Miss Perth Amboys, who spend 11 months of the year pasting bangles and rhinestones to their Marie Antoinette hoop skirts so as to slay them and win first prize at next year's Thanksgiving Day Ball. Star doesn't put this down. Those girls are gay sisters, but they're not girlies or stars. Star, short for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, is mainly into whoring and radical politics. Their philosophy is to destroy the system that's fucking us over. Following this Village Voice article, there were a flurry of arrests because members of Star had mentioned where they did sex work. Sylvia later told Leslie Feinberg, Star was for the street gay people, the street homeless people, and anyone that needed help at that time. Shelter was a big problem for trans street youth. Marsha and I had always sneak people into our hotel rooms, and you could sneak 50 people into two hotel rooms. Feinberg describes the first star house. The first star home was a parked trailer truck in an outdoor parking lot in Greenwich Village. Some two dozen star youth lived together in the trailer. One day at dawn, Rivera and Johnson arrived at the trailer with food for all and discovered to their horror that their home was moving. Some 20 youth were still sleeping in the trailer as the trucker was driving it away. Most youth were able to leap out in time. One awoke to find herself en route to California. Several weeks after the sit-in at Weinstein, Mike Umbers made a deal with star member Bubbles to take over a, quote, dilapidated hellhole of a building, end quote, at 213 East 2nd Street. Arthur Bell describes it. It had a roof, but the toilets wouldn't flush. The water came out rusty from the sink, and there was no heat during the winter. Umbers said the legal rent was $310 a month, but he'd take $200. The four apartment occupants and whoever stayed over paid Bubbles the rent money. Sometimes it got to Mike Umbers, sometimes it didn't. Bubbles split town for Florida in March or April. Significantly, Another account states that Bubbles was extradited to Louisiana to face murder charges. Either way, Bubbles was suddenly out of the scene. During their stay at 213 East 2nd Street, star members fixed up the place, teaching themselves electrical work and plumbing in the process. Sylvia describes some of what they did at Star House to Leslie Feinberg. We fed people and clothed people. 
We kept the building going. We went out and hustled the streets. We paid the rent. We didn't want the kids out in the streets hustling. They would go out and rip off food. There was always food in the house and everyone had fun. Later, we had a chapter in New York, one in Chicago, one in California and England. It lasted for two to three years. During this time, they joined the Young Lords Party, a militant activist group for Puerto Rican youth in New York City, and supported the work of the Black Panthers. Sylvia explained to Feinberg, I ended up meeting some of the Young Lords that day. I became one of them. Anytime they needed any help, I was always there for the Young Lords. It was just the respect they gave us as human beings. They gave us a lot of respect. It was a fabulous feeling for me to be myself, being part of the Young Lords as a drag queen, and my organization, STAR, being part of the Young Lords. I met Black Panther Party leader Huey Newton at the People's Revolutionary Convention in Philadelphia in 1971. Huey decided we were part of the revolution, that we were revolutionary people. After Bubbles left, Umbers claimed that he only received a total of $198 over the following three months. He had them evicted, throwing Sylvia, Marsha, Andorra, and Bambi out on their asses. But not before they destroyed all of the work they'd done fixing the place up. According to Martin Duberman's Stonewall, they even threw the refrigerator out the back window. Sylvia said, that's the type of people we are. You fuck us over, we fuck you right back. By 1973, Star had amassed political power, but were also making enemies. Members of Gay Liberation Front and Gay Activist Alliance were uncomfortable with street queens, mostly out of just pure transphobia and classism. As well, Radical feminists have begun to view drag queens and trans women as mockeries of women, pinning the blame for patriarchy on the lives and bodies of some of the most marginalized women in the world at that time. During the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day rally in Washington Square Park, one of the earliest pride celebrations marking the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, lesbian activists struck out on their own to form a precursor to what would later become the Dyke March. They did this in part to protest the inclusion of drag queens and trans women in Pride. Speaking at the rally, radical feminist lesbian Jean O'Leary took to the stage. She called Sylvia a man in women's clothing. Let's listen. Lesbian feminist liberation negotiated for a week and a half using the means that rational women and women have always used in the past, not disruptive means to try to get up here and read a statement. We were told no, that there would be no political statements read today because one person, a man, Sylvia, gets up here and causes a ruckus, we are now allowed to read our statement. And I think that says something right there. Now I'd like to go on and speak, but I have written here a statement that is backed up by a hundred women, and this was voted on, so I'm just going to read this statement. No, you open anymore, you can't do it. When men impersonate women for, persons, for reasons of entertainment or profit, they insult women. Oh, 
We, we support the right of every person to dress in the way that she or he wishes. But we are opposed to the exploitation of women by men for entertainment or profit. Men have been telling us who we are all our lives. They have tried to do it with scholarship, with religion, with psychiatry. When all else fails, they have used humor to tell us and each other who and what we are. What we object to today is another instance in which men laughing with one another at what they present as women are telling us who they think we are. We don't want to know. Men have never been able to show us ourselves. We are coming into a time and a place as women at which we can and do show one another who we are. Sylvia, distraught at being barred from speaking at the event, literally fought her way to the stage. In the process, she was assaulted by Vito Russo, who you might remember as later being one of the founders of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or as the author of The Celluloid Closet, a book detailing the secret lives of gay men in Hollywood. He hit her with the microphone stand. Finally, Sylvia broke through and took the microphone. She delivered a powerful and historic speech, which you can find on Raina Gossett's Vimeo channel. Here's an excerpt. Men 
heterosexual men that do not... During the speech, Sylvia laments the ways in which the gay movement had, in just a couple of years, turned its back on marginalized and criminalized street youth. She castigates the crowd, and you can hear people booing her. By the end, there appear to be some people cheering for her, though. After Sylvia got off that stage, bruised and emotionally exhausted, not only from the day, but from the hard scrabble, losing fight she'd been waging for so many years, Sylvia walked away. She would retreat from activism for over a decade. In future episodes, We'll talk more about Sylvia and Marcia's lives after 1973, up to and including their deaths. And we'll also explore how these two street queens, largely reviled by other activists at the time, have managed to become the legends they are today. Part of Sylvia and Marcia's legacy is a refusal to engage in what we would call respectability politics today. They fought fiercely to center the voices of the mostly upcolor trans, sex-working youth who bore the brunt of police violence while simultaneously being cast out from the middle-class aspiring white gay community. If there's anything we can do to honor their legacy and the legacy of other star members like Bambi and Dora and Bebe, it's to also center our work around racialized, sex-working trans people. A big part of that means putting our efforts as activists, artists, and cultural workers towards the decriminalization of sex work and HIV, both of which have devastating effects on racialized, sex-working trans youth living lives just like Sylvia and Marcia's today. One small way to help do this work is to donate to organizations that focus on these issues, such as the Trans Women of Color Collective, Sylvia Rivera Law Project, or your local chapter of SWAP. Thank you for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Cree and Haudenosaunee. Research for this episode owes largely to the work of Raina Gossett and Randy Wicker, as well as other sources that are credited in the show notes. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.